0: Prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this Lord's Day. We pray that this Sunday school, this time would be helpful and beneficial to us, that thou would use it, and thou would help me as I teach today, that I may not say anything left or right of thy truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to Sunday School. This is, I believe, our fourth week on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We've covered a systematic overview of kind of the history of the doctrine, of a little bit of the Trinity, a little bit of the Holy Spirit, the function of the Spirit as we read the Word, as we read the Scriptures, how does God work in, this, in the Scriptures by His Holy Spirit. And last week we worked, we, we worked through what the effectual call was, and how the Holy Spirit operates in the effectual call. So today is actually one of the least talked about operations of the Holy Spirit in pretty much Reformed literature, actually. You go and you survey the Puritans and a lot of systematic theologies, you've got to go to the subject index to find this word. And this word is adoption. So so adoption is one of the most, I wouldn't say neglected, but it just kind of gets a little bit pushed to the side In justification, it's like, yes, justification, big, long sections on justification, oh, and adoption. However, adoption is one of the most important uh, Christian doctrines today to us. So let's start by establishing the connection between the effectual call, justification, and adoption. There is, really speaking, no distinguishable time lapse that we can discern between these, Right, so so we can't determine you know well we what came first this or that, we know that in time when the gospel is preached and God works in it men are saved. Right, so this is this is the order of operations, but but oftentimes we don't really know what co- what goes in the time that's last between. So we just say that justification and regeneration and adoption all sort of happen at the same time, they all happen at the same. Time There's no distinguishable time lapse between these because in the effectual call, in regeneration, the person is made ready and willing to believe and at the, at the appointed time in the effectual call. From Ephesians 2.5, it says, And he hath quickened you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. In verse 14, the next verse, he says, Wherefore he called you by our gospel. In Ephesians 1.19, the scriptures say, According to the working of his mighty power. And in Philippians 2.13, the scriptures say, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. So people are called in time, made willing and ready to believe, and then they believe. And those that believe believe, Who have had their heart, mind, and will renewed are justified. We see in Romans 5 1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, those that are justified are first legally paid for, they have peace with God, they have sonship, adoption. We see this in Galatians 4 5 through 6. This will be the topic of our Sunday school today. They have free and certain access to the throne of grace. In Romans 5, 2, the next verse, it says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. In Romans 8, we see this whole uh, discourse on freedom from the law, freedom from the world, starting in verse 2. And, And today's subject, those that are justified are adopted. In Galatians 4, 5, we read, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And this is one of the, I would say, least talked about parts of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. And so who receives this adoption from Galatians 4, 5 through 6? Those that are redeemed from the law. So those that have been translated from light or from death to life. Who is translated? The elect of God. How does God do this in time? The effectual call, which is the gospel call made efficacious by the Holy Spirit. So if you've been called by God and justified, you are adopted. You are. You not will be. You are. You are adopted. We see in Galatians 3.26, for ye are all the children by God, or I'm sorry, ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. I'll read that again. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Two notes here. The first is that there, there's a secular notion that, that kind of pervades real, more extreme liberal sides of evangelicalism. Kind of like the, the sort of CNN broadcaster that says, I'm an evangelical, I pray. This idea that everybody is a child of God by virtue of being a human. We know this is not true by the doctrine of adoption. This is an extremely important implication of adoption. The scriptures say that we were by nature what? Children of, children of wrath. We were not by nature children of God. This is not what the scriptures teach. And this that's Ephesians two three. So it is not our birth that makes us God's children. For we even read as in the Old Testament, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I have hated. And we see this again by Paul in Romans 9, making a point, the same point. That is to say that there is a people of God who God adopts and calls children because he has adopted them. So it's actually quite a great insult when somebody who hates God, who, who does not believe in God, says, I am God's children or child. You say, no, you're not. How offensive. How offensive that you would call yourself God's child. That, that, yeah, exactly. You were your father, the devil. So this is, this is one of the, the challenges. The second point, there is no time that passes between justification and adoption. Uh, the scriptures say, for ye are all children of God by faith, faith being the operator there. So while there is an order of operations logically and theologically, in time there's no discernible difference between these two functions. So there's, there's sequence, of course, but we, we can't discern that sequence. We say theologically the scriptures kind of lay this structure out but we can't we're no wiser for it when we when we have faith we're justified and we're adopted it all happens simultaneously you're not only adopted after you've sort of proven yourself to be justified it's not like God saves you and then he waits to adopt you to see if it'll stick that that and 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 there are a lot of people that that sort of do this and even some of the the more uh, uh, some of the Puritans would even, would even wait to see you know, for a period of time to, to allow someone to take the supper, to wait for their, their, their calling to be made sure. Um, a lot of Baptists even do this. They say, I'm not going to baptize my son until they're exactly 18 years old. You know, you, you can make an argument for it, but I, I personally kind of take issue with that. Take issue with that. So those that are, that are called, those that are justified, and those that are adopted have every right to the table. Have every right to baptism. Doesn't matter if they're 16 or 17 and a half. All right, so 18. We don't take the United States legal code as when someone becomes an adult, right? This, this it's a little bit silly. So that brings us to our next point. What can we learn from God using the word adoption in Galatians 4 or 5? Why is this such an important doctrine to us? And, and how is this practically applicable? So we have four points that I want to focus on today. The first is that by, by saying the word adoption, by saying you've been adopted, he's saying you have not been born into this of your own birth. You were, this is not something that, that, that you were given by virtue of you being a human. This is something completely other. It's unnatural. It's not a natural birth. The, 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 the second point is that you did not choose this adoption on your own. Who, while in an orphanage, sits there and says, I think I'll be adopted today? No. When someone is being adopted, it's the person that is adopting that initiates. And so this this term adoption should really, really let us know, first of all, how much God desires for those that he calls elect to be saved. He does all the pursuing. The third is that you did not pay for your adoption. So in an adoption, there's legal fees, there's, there's all sorts of costs associated, none of which the child has to pay. Who in an orphanage are like, well, this person wants to adopt you, but you got you got to go and work a little bit and pay part of it. No, that's not how this works. So the third point is that you did not pay for your adoption. Parents seeking to adopt a child must cover the cost. They must cover the cost. The child provides nothing to the payment of the adoption. The fourth is that you did not pick the time of your adoption. The scriptures say at the right time, at the fullness of time. Adopted children do not say, I think I will be adopted today by these people for this cost. The, the adopted person doesn't have this sort of freedom. The adopted parent initiates, they pay, they cover the costs, they choose. It is all one-sided there. It is all one-sided. Now, of course, there's different cases where adult children are adopted, and that's a little bit different, oftentimes for inheritance purposes. But I think that the analogy stands It's really powerful that God uses such a word because of the, the image that adoption brings in, into our brain, first of all, and into our heart, secondly. It's intimate. It, it's, it, it's, not, it's not something that's just legal, but it brings you into the family. It brings you into the family. This is very important. So, who receives adoption? Those that have been effectually called and justified by faith. Those that, that are justified are adopted. So the word choice of adoption is exclusively elective. It's one-sided. It means to be made a son. To be made a son. On the point of adoption, it is also a beautiful word because it is agnostic to anything intrinsic to the person being adopted. It's not anything in you you're not chosen for some reason not because you would believe or because you could provide great good to the kingdom not like god's not a utilitarian you know he doesn't he doesn't only elect people who can have the greatest impact that that's not how this works it's agnostic to anything in you it's it's not based on your status what you would become purely on his pleasure we talked about last week the absurdity of Molinism, God looking into the corridor of time, and for two reasons this is absurd. The first, it makes God not free. He's bound to something that he's going to learn about you. And the second is that he learns something, and therefore he's not God on either account. Molinism is quite problematic. And so this adoption language is very, very powerful to demonstrate this point. In, In today's church, even in Calvinistic circles, there is a lot of division right now over ethnicity and sex and all of these intersectional stuff that's going on. And, and um, I, I don't want to get into that today, but I want to explain how the doctrine of adoption completely shuts that down. Yeah. Completely and utterly shuts that down. Adoption completely unravels divisions based on nationality, sex, social status, family, and so on. It doesn't matter where you're from. You're now family in Christ. It does not matter who you are, you are now family in Christ. It says, you were once this, now I have made you my child. My child. So all believers are united by their adoption in Christ. The only thing that can truly break down the types of barriers that are put up by racial divisions, ethnic divisions, cultural divisions, socioeconomic divisions, differences between sex and power struggle... The only thing that can break all that down is adoption. Because it puts everyone on the same field. You have been chosen by none of those things, but purely by God's good pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean that, 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 that Christians are to conform to one social identity in terms of this kind of Christianity or that kind of Christianity, right? If one country celebrating Christianity in, in terms of the way they play music and the way they dress and that sort of thing, uh, that, that can't be lost. We don't need to conform Christianity to one cultural ideal, right? So I'm not saying that. The, the, the gospel doesn't mean we lose who we, we are that are that beautiful things of who we are, right? The types of food we eat. Right? We don't all conform to the same kinds of food practices and things like this. You bring your culture into it because that's who you are and God, God gives us these beautiful things about ourselves. But that does mean that Christians are to look around the world are to look different sound different and dress different from the world right the important part is where those identities conflict with the scriptures they are not to be glorified and identified with so whether you want to wear a very colorful dress like uh, for example in africa they have much more colorful clothing than we have here Um, that that's i'm sure that if someone walked into our church with wearing an african uh, colorful dress we'd kind of be like wow that's very different But so as long as it's modest, so as long as it's honoring to God, we have no problems with it, right? We have no problems with it. And and the point of this is that we are joined together not in a culture of America, not in a culture of Africa, not in a culture of this or that. We are joined together in a culture of Christ. So as long as our cultural practices glorify God according to the scriptures, we can retain them we don't have to look at other people and and say well you, well your culture or our culture is better or worse so as long as it's scriptural that's all that matters that is the only thing that matters there are virtues and practices which are better than other virtues and practices this is real and those better virtues are that which which god says are better period we we, we point to the scriptures in this discussion and say well what do the scriptures say what do the scriptures say Cultural idols are to be cast out, cut off, and thrown out of the church. Thrown out. Our adoption does not divide, it unifies. And this is the, 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 one of the greatest indications that, that the church is in a lot of trouble right now. When we're dividing over things that are not things to divide over from the scriptures. And adoption unifies. And so when when people claiming to be Christians, all they do is divide and divide and divide, who, who, whose child are they? Clearly, they're not of the same adoption as the rest of the saints. Adoption does not divide, it unifies. And it does not unify under social status or skin color or hobbies or anything else. It unifies in Christ and him alone. That is how Paul says in Galatians three twenty-seven through 29, conveniently located in the section talking about adoption, he says, For us, many of you, as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. It's almost like Paul was born in the 21st century. Because we're going through this right now, as a, as a whole, in America especially. And the point is this there is no secular solution to division caused by ethnicity or socioeconomic status or sex differences there is no secular solution to this the only thing that can solve the division between mankind is Christ and him alone that's it period and and so so as long as we are faithful to that then we can, we, can, we can recognize the beautiful cultural differences that occur even in America. We can recognize these beautiful differences and unify under the fact that despite these differences, we are all unified in Christ by our adoption of the same family, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free. We are in Christ. So what do the scriptures say about those who are adopted? The first is that, that it says they are looking forward to the full distribution of the inheritance. They're looking forward. Romans 8.23 says, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. So there, there's a certain twofold aspect to this, right? We're adopted now, but, but the legal inheritance isn't distributed until we're glorified, right? We still live in these broken bodies. We still have in sin. We're not made perfect just yet, and so we can look forward to the day where our inheritance is distributed fully and we're with Christ. And that's a beautiful hope. The scriptures say, in the same passage, earlier in the verse, verse 23 of chapter 8 of Romans, say, We have the first fruits of this adoption, and so yet we wait for the full realization of it. We have the first fruits of it, meaning we really have it, and yet we wait for the full realization of it. So this is a great topic for meditation, and I really encourage if, if, if you have something or, or you guys are lacking inspiration for what to meditate upon this week, meditate on the future adoption. Meditate upon the future hope, the redemption and the glorification of our bodies, where we will finally have everything that the gospel is now be realized perfectly. So this is a great topic for meditation. The second is that those who are adopted are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians one twenty two says, God who hath also sealed and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. There's two observations from this text that I think are very, very important for us to really capitalize on today. The first is that God seals us to himself. And this word, earnest, God has given us an earnest, or the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. And earnest is a guarantee. It secures a promise It is a part of the initial payment. So you pay for something, and then the earnest secures the payment. So not only has he paid for us up front, he has secured that payment until the end. He does the full work through and through. So we can look forward to the day when God glorifies our bodies because he seals us and secures us to that day. And so those that are justified are adopted, are sealed, are secured, And therefore, when we have these doubts in our faith, these struggles in our faith, what can we look to? The fact that God adopted you. That God said, you are my child, you are my daughter. Now appeal to that and say, I've been purchased, brought into the family. I have access, even though I don't deserve it. There was nothing in me, nothing good about me. I was, in fact, a child of wrath. God says, I will make you my son or daughter. In my Son Jesus Christ, what a beautiful, beautiful truth that is, dear church. When you're doubting and struggling, you can appeal to your adoption. So I have been chosen by God. Those, the next point is that those that are adopted are given assurance of their adoption. Romans 8:15 through16 says, "But you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, "Abba, Father." The spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Amen. This is a challenge to many different uh, types of Christian sort of sects in the world. Rome hates this. Why? Because, because the only, they say the only way you can be assured of your salvation is by special revelation. And we're like, well, yeah, it says right here in special revelation. But what they mean is further revelation. Papal revelation, magisterium, that sort of thing. There, there's, all, there's also people that say, well, you can never know, and therefore you can lose your salvation. There is a, there's a lot of different ways that this doctrine gets messed up. And, and possibly the case is because in our modern age, we are so bound up to what can I prove. And yet the scriptures give us what might be called a circular argument here. It says, But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And how do we know this? Because the Spirit beareth witness with our Spirit, that we are the children of God. Uh Uh-oh. That's not very rational. And this is, in fact, the same kind of language that the Reformed use for how we know that we're reading the Word of God and that we know we're the children of God. Imagine that. That that the most fundamental parts of the Christian faith, knowing that we're we're hearing God's voice and knowing that we're his children, are things that cannot be proved by evidence. Or rational proofs. There are things that God entrusts entirely to the Holy Spirit. It's it's pretty humbling, isn't it? Pretty humbling. So assurance of faith is one of the most challenging doctrines to teach today. Because this generation in general needs proof for all things. If I can't prove it, if I can't see it, I don't believe it. And I think Paul might even be called a fideist or perhaps an emotionalist. If he were to come and minister to American churches today, or a lot of other nasty names, he might get the same uh, treatment of being beaten up, stoned. Paul would not be received very well in today's churches, I think. So Paul teaches this doctrine, and I've actually seen similar transactions that take place on this point, where someone will say, they'll say, well, how do you know you're saved? Like, even from Calvinists, I'll say, because the Spirit bears witness in my heart. I know I'm saved because God saved me. Because I believe. believe. Because I believe. And say, well, that's, someone literally told me the other day, you know, so, like, are you totally comfortable, like, with having this kind of emotional argument for Christianity? And I was like, excuse me? Excuse me? (laughs) And, like, how do you even, you can't even respond to that. I say, wow, you don't? You, you aren't comfortable with that kind of argument? The scriptures bring set forth this case. Many people, as a result of doubting this about the Holy Spirit, seek to craft their own ways to be assured. And, and today, in a lot of churches, assurance of faith is taught in a number of different ways. In some ways, it said you cannot have assurance. Many churches say you just plain can't have it. You can't know you're saved. So therefore, struggle your whole life <laughs> with doubting your salvation. Others say, well, you've got to work at it. You know you're saved if you do my five favorite works. I know you're saved if I think you're saved. And this is another trap. Other people, they, they have very big flowery worship services, right? The big, loud music that's, that's designed to make your, the, the hairs on your back tingle. This is a way people seek assurance. The really big production value musical performances a really big way that people are are uh, assured, and in fact, when, when people who are trying to transition from New Calvinism to a reformed liturgy, oftentimes their their biggest complaint is, I just can't do the hymnals because they're so used to that feeling that the big production value musical concerts give them something that I had to work through in fact. It took me about two years to work through like, finally being okay singing with a hymnal, but, but when it clicked, I was like, I love this. I'll never want to go back to this modern worship stuff. The second thing uh, that, that, that people do for their assurance in the modern church is, is kind of really like TED Talk style preaching. Right, just the kind of preaching that, that makes you feel good a little bit, that maybe, maybe is about becoming successful in business or your marriage or having a better sex life. Like these things that really have nothing to do with the gospel, uh, at least in its essence. And this is another way they say, well, if I just feel good leaving church, then, then I know I'm a Christian. The biggest trap for reformed folks. It's of godliness without the power of it. Where, you know, you've got, I always say this because I think we all do it to some degree or another. You've got your five things, because I've got my five things, that if I say, if I do these five things daily, I know I'm saved. And after a period of that, you start to trust in that. And, and so when you have a bad season, maybe you go on vacation, you have a lazy vacation, and you come back and you don't immediately hit the ground running in your Bible reading, in your prayer, and you come back and, you, and you're slow on the take. And you're like, whoa, was I ever saved? because you're not doing your routine. Now, routines are good. Don't take this as me advocating against routines. I'm one of the most routinized persons I know. I make lists for everything. I'm highly organized. But never trust in your routines. Never trust in your organization. Trust in Christ. Right? All of our routines and our schedules should serve our assurance which is in Christ, but not be the foundation of it. Never the foundation of it. And so I say this to encourage you all here not to put your hope in empty things that are gonna fail you. Right? Don't have the false notion that 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 a good peppy sermon is gonna make you feel good and make you think you're saved, that a big worship song is gonna make you feel saved, or that your consistency and godliness is gonna make you feel saved. Those things will fail you. There was a church that I went to that had an amazing worship leader, like just phenomenal. And he left to go to law school at UCLA. And they brought in a new worship leader. And people left. Because, like, man, I just don't feel the spirit here moving anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 the spirit's name was Garth? Yeah. The spirit. <laughs> yes. So, so it, it just shows that, that, while it maybe sounds a little bit absurd, these are things that people go through. These are things that people feel, and it's very real. And so we have to recognize them in ourselves and say, are we doing a, are, do we have a scriptural model of assurance? Do we have a scriptural model? of these kinds of things, because psalms end, happy happy preaching doesn't accurately reflect the real world, as we all know. You know, you could could be really encouraged by a Joel Osteen sermon, and then you go home to find out that that your dog choked on something, and that your your, your kids hate you, and that your job's going to fire you. The world is not clean like that. The world is ugly and sinful, and preaching ought to talk to that. So it sometimes doesn't make you feel good every, every now and then. And the third is that your religious consistency cannot last forever. There, there's, there's times where you're going to be really strong in your faith. But who knows, maybe your eyes are going to get too bad to read. That happens to people as they get older. They can't read anymore. Maybe you go deaf. You can't hear preaching anymore. Your body's going to start to fail. You're going to not have as much energy. And when that time comes... You, you need to have enough scriptures stored up in your heart to live off of until, until the Lord brings you home. And this is a really, really important thing. If your hope is in your outward practices, by the time you get too aged to actually consistently do these things, at the end of your life, you may feel very, very dry and empty. Even young in your life. Break your leg, something gets taken away from you, and you can't participate in your routine Things can go very, very awry for you. So do not put your things in that, that, don't put your hope in things that won't last forever. Jesus said that he would give us a helper, the Holy Spirit, and we must actually believe that. This is probably the biggest disconnect in Calvinist practical theology that I I see on a day-to-day basis, where Calvinists say, yes, I was dead in sin, dead, dead, at the bottom of a ditch. Even if someone threw a rope on my body, it would just hit me and I'd still be dead. Absolute monergism. They say, Christ raised me up, renewed me by the Holy Spirit, regenerated me, but I need to see, I need to prove my salvation. My assurance comes from me. And it's the strangest disconnect, isn't it? Because theologically they admit, that they say, okay, Christ, yes, Christ's work in my sanctification. It's all, it's all of Christ. It's all of Christ. It's all of Christ. But I've got my five things, and if I check my boxes, then I know I'm saved. And there's a huge disconnect. There's a, there's a huge disconnect, and I think it hurts people. It hurts people that teach this doctrine. It hurts people that are taught this doctrine. Because the second that they, that they go through a season of trial and temptation and sin, they fall away. Or they think they're not saved. I've seen this, I can't even count how many times. I'm 28 years old, I cannot even count how many times I've seen this. It's horrifyingly sad. When people put their hope in themselves, they tend to fall away. So we must actually believe the Reformed Ordo salutist. We must actually believe in the Holy Spirit, which says that God raised us from death to life. We must also realize the weight of that. God made you alive, and he will also assure you that he made you alive. An alive person knows they're alive. God will help you with that. You can't Being dead, know that you're dead. But you know when you're alive that you're alive, right? And God helps us with that. That's very important. Finally, our last point is that adoption motivates us to live unto God. And this is where the rubber hits the road. You've been adopted. You are adopted. Take a moment. We're going to take just five seconds, and I want you to think and say that to yourself in your head. I'm adopted. It's powerful. I'm adopted. Now what? Like that's, that should be joyful, right? It should make us want to go and do something, right? It should make us want to go and live unto God. 2 Corinthians six seventeen through 18 says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Be ye separate. Separate yourselves from the world. There are three ways to live unto God as sons and daughters. And you are sons and daughters. If ye believe, ye are sons and daughters. Ye are. The first is that we receive instruction from him as a father. And it's so important when we read the scriptures that we read the scriptures as children. And while it's important to consult commentaries and to be studious, certainly this is important. As we approach the scriptures studiously, we must do so as a child being taught. A diligent student that is being taught one of the critiques that I've, I, I've, I've written down in a lot of the modern exegesis books that I've been reading it, is that modern exegesis seems to be men talking over the voice of God, oftentimes. And, it, and it's hard for me to see this and, and say that that's better. It's hard for me to see that and say that's better because there is something missing, and it's that theology should be done by believers as children being taught by their father and so the first is that we receive instruction from God as father we believe about him what he says about himself we worship him how he says to worship him and we love what he loves and hate what he hates this is the first way we live as adopted children we learn as children we learn as children the second is that we receive discipline from God as a father. We receive discipline from God as a father, knowing that it's for our good and his glory. A father, a good father, will always discipline to bring his sons and daughters to a better place, right? To, to be more apt to be in the world, to, to succeed, uh, to, to, to not hurt other people, to live in harmony with all creatures. This is the the general role of a parent in discipline so that their child doesn't go out and hurt themselves, hurt other people, so that they are successful. In the same way, God does this for us. And so in seasons of our life, we're going to be disciplined. And it's actually quite encouraging, though uh, hard, when God disciplines us. Because it lets us know that he's our father. Doesn't make the rod hurt any less. But it certainly feels good knowing that we are being disciplined by our father who loves us and cares for us. So when somebody, our brother or sister, or perhaps a pastor, or even the scriptures as we read them, when, we, when, when someone says something, or we run into something in the scriptures, and, you, and, and, and the, the overwhelming sentiment is, this is not lining up with your life. The scriptures here are saying something, and you're doing this other thing. Receive discipline. Do not scorn the, the friend that comes to wound you that has words of life that that he's going to give to you. And we receive this in conference, in fellowship, in the the preaching on the Lord's Day, as well as simply the, the Holy Spirit's ministrations to us in the word as we read. Receive discipline from your Father. And finally, we act according to how he says, not necessarily out of duty and obligation, though that's a good sentiment, but out of gratitude out of gratitude he adopted us for no reason in us only his good pleasure by his good pleasure and so therefore this should produce a great amount of gratitude and so when we're feeling dry and we're, we're not living up to it think of your adoption and say wait a minute i'm i'm his son i'm his daughter I ought to go serve him. I ought to go love him. I ought to be taught by him and be disciplined by him and be a good son and be a good daughter. we we'll end on this. What are the fruits of justification and adoption? The first is reconciliation with God. You're reconciled. The second is peace with God. The third is a quiet conscience or loud if you're living in sin. <laughs> And that's a beautiful means of assurance when your conscience is eating you up and screaming at you. Stop living this way. That's assurance. The fourth is joy. Joy. The fifth is liberty. You're not a slave under the law anymore. You can live unto Christ. The sixth is faith. Faith has been given to you and will be kept in you. Seventh is inheritance and expectation of the final inheritance. And the last is assurance that you have been adopted. You believe and therefore are adopted. Adoption is a beautiful word the Lord uses. It reminds us to approach him as a child, knowing that he chose us, bought us, and gave us an inheritance. He will discipline us because he loves us and that he knows better than us in all things. It is good and beneficial to study, to gain theological knowledge. Just make sure we do so as an adopted child, grateful, eager to learn, and ready to serve, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this time. I pray that it has been beneficial to Thy people. Apply it to their hearts, that they may be willing and eager to serve Thee this week. In Jesus' name, Amen. Does anyone have any questions? Yeah. Yeah.